Firstly, let me introduce myself. Uh, my name is, uh, as advertised, uh, <laughs> uh, Professor Mick Cox, Michael Cox, Director of LSE Ideas and Emeritus Professor of International Relations. I always keep pointing out to people that emeritus does not mean dead. Um, and every time I tell that joke, I get a laugh, so I'm going to tell it next time as well. But anyway, I've been here at the LSE 15 years and hope to carry on, hopefully, who knows, for another 15 years, but we shall see. Uh, I'm director of LSE Ideas, which is called uh, LSE's uh, Foreign Policy Think Tank, where we do some thinking. And some of the thinking, which a lot of people have been thinking about, I think, over the last uh, few years, but maybe especially since 2016, I always think now a tipping point year. Uh, we always have years, 89, 2001, 2008, but I'm wondering if 2016, how that's going to be regarded historically as well. And we don't need to go back over. What happened in June, a referendum was held in this country. And a few months later, and I think the two things were connected, Donald Trump became president. In some ways, this was not just a British or an American event. I think this was a huge international and global significance in the context of other things happening at the same time. Two of the pillars, if you like, uh, of the, what we call the liberal order uh, were challenged at their fundamentals, I suppose one could say. Anyway, I'm not going to give the lecture because that's why I brought three other people along tonight to do all the hard work. Um, the first speaker who will go first is my good friend from Princeton, many years, uh, John Eikenberry. I don't think he would need much introduction to an audience like this. John has written many great books on liberal order, liberal internationalism, world politics, what happens after wars, the making of peace. And now, of course, John is once again engaged in thinking about what is happening to this liberal order and to what degree is it in a profound terminal or temporary crisis. And John will open the discussion sitting over there. Uh, followed second by another good friend, Cory Shacker, now Deputy Director down at the International Institute of Strategic Studies, just down the road there near the river. Uh, Corey has held several positions in the uh, US, uh, in the United States, in the Department of Defense, in the State Department, and in the National Security Council under a previous administration, I think I should point out. And uh, her most recent uh, publication, you will soon find out why I said that, um, her most recent publication is called America versus the West, Can the Liberal Order Be Preserved? And last but by no means least, another friend, uh, Professor Linda Yu, uh, an Asia and China specialist for many years, now working in the broader areas of political economy, global economics, and uh, working with myself on an LSE Ideas program, which is called Economic Diplomacy Commission. So we've got three fantastic speakers for this evening. The format will be each will speak, uh, and I'm going to be pretty strict on this one for about 15 minutes each. And then we will open up as soon as possible to questions and answers. Please keep your answers simple in the sense of one question per person, okay? We don't want multiple warhead questions. I'm going to ask seven questions and it will take me 20 minutes. Um, I will then cry, order, order, and you will know what I'm getting at. <clears throat> I really like that guy, by the way. He, he certainly enlivened up Parliament, has he not? Um, the title tonight is called No Longer Special 
the death of Anglo-America, but it, I suppose the subtitle there is The Death of the Liberal Order. Could I ask you to turn off your phones or to put them on to silent? Uh, this event is recorded and will be published as an audio podcast. I'm also asked to draw your attention to the forms, which you will then fill out and say, what a wonderful evening. It was, I hope. But anyway, with no further ado, I wonder if you could give an LSE welcome to our three speakers tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That's great to uh, kick off, and thank you, Mick, for your introduction and for hosting this. You do so many great programs, and it's an honor to be part of, part of your program tonight. Um, I think you were right in kind of kicking off the theme, which is, uh, the discussion of Anglo-America today is really a discussion of the future of the, the liberal world order. As the crisis of the international order, I've got some PowerPoints, uh, unfolds, it increasingly looks like it's a crisis of the Anglo-American approach to international order building, the kind of global system built over, uh, over many decades, indeed centuries. The 2016 uh, Events uh, really do look like a world historical turning point, Brexit and Trump. These two leaders of two countries that for 200 years have really engaged in, as I'll try to argue tonight, uh, a distinctive type of uh, international order building. No other states after this 200 years of activity that we can focus on and call the liberal American approach to world order no other countries have done more to give that uh, contemporary modern world order a liberal, open, rule-based character. But now we have what seems to be these two countries, at least their leaders, saying we want off, that uh, we've had enough. And that's the uh, puzzlement, the curiosity. Uh, Trump in particular uh, seems to be not just uh, neglectful, but indeed sharply critical and uh, attempting to to attack uh, ideologically and, and politically uh, key aspects, the hallmarks of the Anglo-American world order, open trade, human rights, multilateralism, arms control, alliances, and democratic solidarity, which I uh, want to emphasize tonight. Great powers rise and fall, international orders come and go, but it's hard to think of a leader of a major state that has actively uh, undermined or indeed sabotaged the kind of order that that country over many, many decades uh, built. Um, arguably, uh, the thing that has made the Anglo-American partnership special has been not so much their dyadic relationship but the, their combined efforts over 200 years to build uh, a distinctive type of international order. We should uh, remember that across the ancient and modern era, great powers have tended not to do this. There has been a general pattern of great power order building associated with building blocks and regions and spheres. Uh, imperial zones that are tied to the state. You can make sense of that. Uh, Albert Hirschman's great book in uh, 1945, State Power and uh, uh, International Trade, makes the argument why powerful states on their borders might want to build hierarchical spheres using the kind of usable power they have, trade and security levers, uh, and thereby create a world of regions. But Britain and the United States, uh, while Britain, of course, had and uh, embraced and defended its empire, these two countries across 200 years uh, have engaged in a different kind of order building. 
what I would call milieu-based uh, rather than positional, not so much focused directly, although this, they, these moments occurred, at other great powers, but at building a, an ecosystem, a, 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 an environment, a, a, a global space uh, where open exchange, uh, freedom of navigation, multilateral principles, trans-regional systems of cooperation can occur. Of course, there are. Uh, 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 it's a complex story. Uh, uh, these states have engaged in crude power politics. Britain had an empire. The United States has been uh, crudely imperial in various parts of the world. But to, but over the course of the particularly the 20th century. Uh, these states tied their national interest to to a kind of uh, ideology and program of liberal internationalism, a vision that has had various components rooted in the Enlightenment, uh, built out of the age of democratic revolution, a vision of, as Wilson put it, to make the world safe for democracy, to create a container so that these fragile eggs we call liberal democracies can have a, a structure and, and, and support. Uh, uh, built around a set of convictions that have been quite durable over 200 years, that trade and exchange generate mutual gains, rules and, inst and institutions facilitate uh, cooperation, uh, reinforcing trust. Shared democratic values have some value in uh, doing deals, in creating international uh, order, that liberal democracies, because of their characteristic, can create higher order kinds of political systems that aren't simply balance of power or crudely imperial, to create these more complex uh, systems. But most importantly, the liberal international vision, the Anglo-American version of it, emerging out of two centuries of struggling to try to make sense of modernity, to try to make sense not of, as realists would have it, how do we cope in a world of anarchy, but how do we cope as liberal democracies in a world of, of, of ravages and opportunities of, of modernity? How do we cope with rising cascades of economic and security interdependence? How do we survive in that kind of world? Um, there we go. Um, I, I, I wanted to make one set of remarks that are, are sort of aimed at remembering, remembering our history. Uh, uh, today, you look at the Anglo-American elites who defend their, their borders and their, their nations in these post-liberal ways, uh, do not speak of their past in the way that other generations have, looking back at the accomplishments uh, of this of the system. Nations are built through myth-making, myth but so too are international orders, the narratives, the way we think about the past, the way we foreground things that we shouldn't forget never again, uh, are, are, are aspects of reproducing and, and re, uh, recovering and uh, healing uh, uh, your international order uh, in the midst of, of various uh, violence that's done to it by, by particular uh, uh, individuals and groups at individual moments. So my big seven, seven accomplishments, if you will, uh, of the Anglo-American era starts with the remarkable and often forgotten uh, transition from a world of, uh, of empire to a world of nation states, uh, from a world that was even at the end of the 19th century primarily uh, imperial to a world where not at the end of the 20th century, not a single uh, uh, entity was really uh, uh, understood to be inside of an empire, uh, that every realist 
state uh, uh, had a, a nation state and that self-determination principles uh, and statehood were the legitimate norm to assess uh, political change. Secondly, within this order, particularly after 1945, the space, remember I was talking about milieu, uh, space, ecosystem, created uh, circumstances that would allow uh, people in that space, not globally, but in that space, uh, uh, the opportunity to create more wealth, more physical security, and glimmerings of social justice than any other international order in world history. Thirdly, Western states in this order, particularly again after World War II, were able to make uh, transitions and reinvent the connections between capitalism and liberal democracy across this space, countries doing it differently, but doing it nonetheless, creating welfare states, the Germans, uh, West Germans creating the social market, the French, the British, each, uh, Clement Attlee, bless his heart, doing, doing uh, the modernization of capitalism and social democracy in Britain, so too the New Deal in the United States. Extraordinary moments in the shadow of all that had just happened totalitarianism, fascism, the total war, the Holocaust, the atomic bomb, and so forth, the Great Depression. Number four, Europe uh, was able to embark on a, a radical new experiment, uh, emerging its hatreds, embarking on a grand project of union. Five, um, Germany and Japan, uh, uh, who had been the enemy of these uh, liberal democracies just a few years later, flipped on a dime and became integral partners in this system and were able to, in the context of that milieu, reinvent themselves as civilian great powers. Neither to this day has nuclear weapons. Neither advertises itself as a traditional great power. Uh, they see themselves fitting in to a larger system that allows them to emphasize other values and other agendas and to work in a kind of functionally differentiated way to create uh, a strength and order that emerges from the larger aggregate. Six, across the trilateral world, the building of uh, what I've studied uh, in, in my IR uh, uh, hat days as a scholar, the, the, the multilateralism, institutions, how do they arise, what do they do? There is a story about the rethinking and the redeployment of institutions in the, in the 20th century that has never been really well uh, told by scholars, but we know it because we can see it. The post-war institutions, uh, IMF, World Bank, all the others, uh, creating a framework, a permanent machinery not thought of possible in the 19th century to, to allow for these countries to solve problems. And then finally, non-Western states making transitions. Uh, in East Asia, the alliance system was very important, uh, in, in not starting with, with Japan, but then uh, uh, with South Korea, Taiwan, uh, 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 Indonesia, uh, uh, Philippines, and other countries in Asia making economic and political transitions within the context of this framework where trade and security were structured, and so too, of course, after the Cold War in East Asia. But most importantly, China, and this is where I would end the set of the long list of accomplishments. During the era of Pax Americana, China has had its three best decades in a thousand years. Isn't that puzzling? That under an era where marked by its great competitor, it is doing better than it's done before. 
Uh, so that is what I would suggest is what is often forgotten, the kind of memory, the myth-making, uh, uh, the narratives of where we've come from that are now no longer echoed uh, uh, when our leaders uh, sit and, uh, stand in front of the, the lectern and talk about nationalism and borders. So what is the problem today? Where, why has this happened? It, to some extent, I think we all now believe, as we see the world unfold, that uh, Trump and, 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 and Johnson are, are more uh, symptoms than causes. They are part of a larger thing that we still don't completely understand, a kind of global backlash to modernity, uh, uh, nationalist populist movements in every quarter of the world. It, because it's happening in so many places at the same time, there's something deeper going on that I think we still don't fully understand. Uh, inside of the West, uh, another source of the problem, I should probably do my work here, um, uh, the, uh, the, the failures of the post-Cold War uh, uh, liberal order, uh, starting with Iraq, which has discredited the Iraq War, uh, segments of the internationalist coalition in these countries, certainly in the United States, conservative internationalists, but also liberal hawks, Hillary Clinton, uh, 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 Tony Blair. These were all con uh, leaders who were, in some sense, tarnished by this failure. Uh, and then secondly, the 2008 financial crisis, which uh, tarnished or discredited another uh, flank of internationalists uh, across the advanced industrial world. The, the Washington consensus, the, the neoliberal model, all of that has made it harder for these countries to stand up and argue that they are, they are the, the wave of the future. I'll just end by suggesting that there's yet another layer to the problem that you have to focus on to think about the future, and that is that we forget that this Anglo-American order was in some sense inside the Cold War bipolar system. It was not a global order. It, was, uh, it, was, it had had its, its glory days when it was in some sense in opposition to other grand projects, uh, obviously the Soviet, but even before that during World War II and in the 1930s, fascist and other imperial projects. And it was partly defining itself and elevating its game because there was an alternative. The Soviet uh, narrative was very different. It had an impact that scholars tell us about uh, uh, inside of countries. The civil rights movement was partly seen as important to JFK and Johnson because the world was watching and our statements about liberal democracy were ones that were part of a broader struggle, uh, geopolitical struggle. But what happened, of course, was this inside order, partly because it was so successful and it was the last order-building project standing in 1991, the inside order became the outside order. And now, in the moment of triumph, when uh, young uh, uh, policy planners could talk about the end of history and make a name for himself, uh, we were, in some sense, planting the seeds of, of, the, of the crisis uh, when, when all the cheering was going on. And two uh, kinds of, of implications were set in motion. One was simply that a Polanyi kind of dynamic where the, the social mobilization and interdependence of the order was expanding outward and deepening and undermining the political foundations which had been tied to this Cold War system of bargains and institutions and Japan, Germany, US trilateralism. But secondly, the sense that that liberal order, that Anglo-America was building uh, not a global order, but a kind of club 
that countries should want to be in, because if they are in it, they have a kind of sense of security and well-being, uh, a security community, as Carl Deutsch car called it, where if you are in it, you are uh, able to, to uh, prosper and be safeguarded through institutions and partnerships and so forth. When this inside order became the outside order, the global order, the liberal order, became less a club and more like a shopping mall where you could go and plug into this institution's the WTO or not plug into that institution it lost its identity it lost its sense that that it was a project that we were in it together it's now more of a public utility that you can plug into or not um, I'll just end by saying where does this lead us I think it's not a happy story I don't think there is a simple little slogan that if we all chant it to tonight we're going to turn things around um, uh, the liberal international ideas, I think, are still there. It's a flag without an army. Uh, but it is, I think, in some sense, the best hope, if you will, is that we will uh, see a kind of learning process from where we are now, that, the, that Boris and Donald will fail and be repudiated in some sense. But I mean them as more surrogates for the larger uh, uh, nationalism, that there is something functional about seeing yourself as a leader of the free world. It elevates your sense that there is a milieu that you're trying to build and not simply trying to make your country great again. So I think the backlash to the backlash uh, is where I would pin the hopes that there will be a uh, 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 in the spirit of Hong Kong, there will be a new sense that we do have values. We do th would prefer to live in open societies, in liberal democracies rather than the alternative. And those values matter in how we do our politics and how we think about international relations. Thank you very much, John. That's great. Straight over to you, Corey. Corey. I agree with much of what John says about the nature of the liberal order. Um, and that it was a conscious construction by, in particular, Britain and the United States in 1945. But I differ with him both on the trajectory to get there uh, and also on the timeline. Because uh, the U.S. and Britain are so similar now in so many ways, especially in our current craziness, that we have a tendency to project that backward and to think that that was always the case. But it really wasn't. And I want to take you along through the 19th and early 20th centuries to try and persuade you of my view that, um, that Britain and the United States begin as adversaries, have a series of crises where the United States is seeking to change the rules of the order that Britain dominates. And in 1895, Britain agrees with those changes, and you get a common cause for reasons that are predominantly um, the two societies were similar to each other and different from everybody else, and they felt that sense of similarity, and they felt the difference with everyone else. That's what made the relationship feel so special, and it ceases to be quite so special, possibly as early as 1916, when uh, the United States begins to 
Aspire begins to think it possible that it can create an international order in which it and Britain are not the only liberal democracies. And it is the expansion of the liberal democratic club that makes the relationship slightly less different. So if it fails bilaterally, that's only because it succeeds more bigger and more broadly. And one of my very favorite things John Eikenberry ever wrote was his belief that the liberal international order would actually succeed most beautifully when the United States became irrelevant to it. That is, when the practice of strong powers voluntarily limiting their freedom of action through institutions, through rules of order, through common practices, through political commitments to each other, through the fostering of civil societies that permeate across national boundaries, that that would be the ultimate success of the liberal international order. But let me start uh, with 1776, uh, because you may remember that the United States didn't initially want to be different than everybody else. What it wanted was the rights that British citizens living in Britain had. Right? That's the genesis of the American Revolution. And we only get more grandiose when George Washington and company feel that they cannot get the rights of British citizens from the British Parliament and the British King. So the revolution isn't the United States trying to be the dif different than Britain. It actually is the United States trying to be the same as Britain. And the War of 1812 is also not such a breach because what the United States is demanding is that Britain apply the rules that apply to everybody else to the United States. Uh, no impressment of sailors just because they may sound like Irishmen or Englishmen. They are American citizens and that needs to be respected and the trade stuff that goes with it. So neither in 1776 nor in the War of 1812 is the US really trying to change the system um, it's a byproduct of the U.S. trying to get what it wants from Britain. But by 1823, with the Monroe Doctrine, it's the first time the U.S. tries to radically change the rules. Uh, you, may you may know, I didn't when I started writing Safe Passage, that, um, that it's actually a British proposal to the United States that we will jointly prevent the continental European powers from taking advantage of Spain's crumbling control in Latin America and say no more colonies in Latin America. But what the United States with the Monroe administration demands is that Britain recognize the independence of at least one of these new states, which would have been a very high price for Britain to pay in its relationship with its continental neighbors. And so uh, Palmerston outsmarts the John Quincy Adams and James Monroe and gets an agreement with the French that the French won't do that. Moreau's so spluttering with indignation that that's where you get this grandiosity of the continent of America is no longer going to be subject to European colonization. Something that the United States lacked the military capacity to enforce for at least 70 years. And the beautiful irony of the Monroe Doctrine, it's actually the Royal Navy who has to enforce it, because our interests align even if the United States is grandstanding. Uh, 
The, the next moment the U.S. tries to change the rules is in 1845. Uh, Britain and the United States had joint sovereignty over what was known as the Oregon Territory, which was British Columbia, what is now Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Wyoming, and the Dakotas. Um, they, had joint, they had joint sovereignty because nobody lived there, right? <laughs> but with westward migration, uh, you, have, you go from having uh, a very small number of people living in the territory to 35,000 people living in the territory because you get the opening of the Oregon Trail, you get people fleeing uh, the growing violence in the border states of Kentucky and Missouri in the run-up to the Civil War. And James K. Polk runs for president on the argument that we should take the southwest from Mexico because they couldn't protect American settlers against Comanche and other Indian depredations, and we should take the Oregon Territory from Britain on the novel argument that countries that were not democratic should have no rights in international law, which is an attempt to completely overturn the international order that Britain created and policed at that time. And Britain uh, knocked that idea down to the mat by waiting until the United States was already at war with Mexico, but before we won it. So forcing the United States into the trap that the U.S. had forced Britain into in the War of 1812, fighting in two unrelated theaters where you couldn't swing forces from one to another. So in 1812, Britain's focused on the Napoleonic Wars and the U.S. makes mischief. Britain reverses it uh, during the Oregon Boundary Crisis in 1845, and, and Polk withdraws from that. But what happens in 1845 is British uh, democracy activists uh, begin to support the American argument, arguing that domestically Britain would be better off by greater democratization. So you have the slow inklings of this cultural knitting together by 1845. Uh, the mystery of why Britain doesn't recognize the Confederacy during the American, during the American Civil War uh, largely has to do with that knitting together. That is, 90% of British immigrants to the United States by 1860 were from Scotland and Ireland to the industrialized north. Um, and the British government feared that by aligning itself with the Confederacy, those familial relations between Ireland, Scotland, and the American North would make it more challenging to control Ireland and Scotland, which for me as an American is such a beautiful reflection. It's the reverse of the World War II uh, internment of Japanese Americans. That is, that we, when we get fearful, we think that our multicultural mosaic is going to be a vulnerability. And in the most important instance when harm could be done to a rising America's aspirations, our mosaic of nationalities that of people who choose to become Americans stayed the hand of the strongest power in the international order. The next instance, uh, let's see. So what you see happen in the 1870s is 
The U.S., because of westward expansion, comes to think of itself in imperial terms, and Britain has largely democratized. And so they look similar to each other and different from everybody else. And you first begin to see this growing together. I, at least, first began to see it by reading travel writers, hmm. right? Because British, the British coming to America before the 1870s, you know, Charles Dickens does a tour of the United States, and he's aghast. He describes the United States as more barbaric than the Indian cultures that displaced on the continent. <laughs> um, but by the 1870s, you start to see sympathetic portrayals. And it's not just because of the end of slavery in the United States, uh, because by the 1870s, you have you have the corrosion of reconstruction of the American South and the blowback of racism um, against, in particular, against Native and black Americans. Um, so the next big attempt to change the rules is an obscure crisis in an obscure little corner of Venezuela where um, British firms had been loaning or had been taking bids from the Venezuelan uh, um, military government to build infrastructure and every new military dictator in Venezuela would just default on the loans. And so the British would do what was common practice then. You l land marines at the port of Corinto and you abscond with the import duties until you get paid off. And it's such a wonderful story about um, America internationally because you have an American president, Grover Cleveland, who is so anti-imperialist, he retracted consideration of the annexation of Hawaii. He considers the Monroe Doctrine a troublesome thing he would like to avoid. And some American lobbyist working for the military dictator of Venezuela starts writing op-ed pieces all over American newspapers saying the Monroe Doctrine has been American policy for 70 years and Grover Cleveland's a coward to overturn it. And it starts this big debate, at, which ends up with Grover Cleveland getting a unanimous vote in both houses of Congress for a policy that would take us to war with Great Britain over Venezuela. <laughs> it gets solved by arbitration. The British-American arbitration treaties come out of that. Um, and during the crisis, this is the nearest Britain and America come to war across 100 years. What stabilizes the relationship and creates the space for compromise by the two governments is the growing interconnectedness of civil society. So a whole bunch of members of parliament write an open letter to their American congressional counterparts asking for arbitration of this. Uh, the Prince of Wales is a signatory of a letter in the Kansas Star Tribune that says that um, war between these two countries would be fratricide. Mm -hmm. and, and that stabilizes the fraught relationship. And that's the moment at which it really gets special. You can see it during the 1898 Spanish-American War. Britain's practically American, an American ally. It refuses coal to Spanish ships. It allows American impressment of British sailors um, to, in the Pacific. Uh, and, but then, by World War I, and I'll close with this, because this is the inflection point where it stops being so special. 
at a time in which we think of this as the cementing of the alliance, right? The United States provides what Britain had always been hoping for amongst allies. It hoped that the colonies would provide the troops to win the Continental War. Even hoped the Japanese, through their defense arrangement, their defense treaty with Britain would do it. It's the United States that provides the money, the supplies, and the manpower to break the stalemate on the Western Front in World War I. But Britain is so worried, worried about American abandonment that they actually have an internal governmental study trying to see if the United States could force Britain to capitulate in the war. And they conclude that Woodrow Wilson, who was, you know, nervously... Um, uh, creating a sort of moral equivalence between the German and the British cases. That's what made the British so nervous. They do this internal study. Could the United States force the capitulation of Britain? And they conclude the United States could. Um, it's so worrisome that uh, Winston Churchill says in about 1923 uh, that the United States is a greater threat to Britain than Germany was during the uh, battleship races. So what, what begins to make it fraught is this American push, as John said, to create a larger liberal order, which would require the breakup of imperial trade preferences and would require self-determination. That is what Franklin Roosevelt gets from, what, gets from Winston Churchill at Halifax as the price for America coming in to World War II. And that's in the aftermath of that is when you genuinely get the liberal order constructed by a very hesitant United States, guided by a very smart Britain. Thanks very much, Chris. Great. And over to you. Come on, Linda. Thank you, Mick. Um, the... Uh, Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm, going to, I'm an economist, so I'm going to focus my lens more on, the, um, on three things, on what is um, the Anglo-American relationship in a multipolar 21st century world economy. And then like Corey and John, um, probably all of you have begun to, to realize what Mick's introduction, fantastic introduction, um, the, probably the footnote to that is that we're all keen on history, <laughs> including Mick. <laughs> so I'm going to go historical, and I want to look at um, the, uh, the liberal world order, as, um, as John has described, the relationship between the U.S. Um, and Britain um, in an economic historical context to try to help make sense of how the, this could evolve in a 21st century um, that looks rather different but has echoes of history in that that revolving, evolving relationship also had to do with shifting economic power between Britain and the United States. And so in many ways, I will pick up the story after World War II and overlap with what some of John said in terms of the Cold War and the end of the Cold War. Um, so the, the first thing to say is um, the 21st century world economy looks multipolar. Um, emerging economies account for a greater share of world GDP than advanced economies. And it's a trend that looks likely to continue. So we are no longer looking at a world where um, the United States was the uh, really the biggest engine of growth. And then, of course, the EU as a bloc, including Britain, 
um, it's actually larger, was a larger um, economic um, entity. Um, let me just give you a caveat about uh, economic forecasting. The, um, the great economist J.K. Galbraith said, economic forecasting exists to make astrology look respectable. <laughs> so I wouldn't... Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so even if the, even if the, uh, the forecasts are not quite... Uh, you shouldn't quite rely on that. What we definitely see is certainly um, the rise of new markets, new middle class, new consumers coming from um, China, coming from the rest of Asia, and really emerging economies becoming uh, more middle class, which does change. And a lot of the pressures on the current um, liberal world order economically is coming from greater economic weight, coming from countries which did not have a stake in the setting up of that world order. And I think this is my kind of setup to say, what would this liberal world order, what would the US-UK relationship within this context, um, how would it fare? And um, what is it up against? So as I'm beginning to set out, clearly the countries which are um, the emerging economies, which are increasingly important in the world economy, have different systems to the systems that we see um, in America and in Britain and indeed in um, the, uh, the kind of the economic system of the Bretton Woods system, of the way in which um, capitalism um, has, been, um, has been done. And in fact, this is setting up competing models of how global governance um, might be done, uh, who sets the rules, but what kind of rules, and importantly, do you have to be this link between uh, capitalism and liberal democracy or social democracy that John set out? Does that link exist today in some of the countries that are not democratic in the sense that we've been describing, but are economically very successful? So we are at a point in which there is a, a battle of ideas. And I want to now go back in history and place this in a historical context because this is not the first time there has been a battle of ideas, that it wasn't always the case that um, there was this acceptance, um, as you've already heard from the others, that this is the system we ought to, uh, to be in. Um, so I'm also going to take you back to the 19th century, um, but I'm going to take you back to the late 19th century. Um, so you remember the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846? Um, nobody remembers the repeal of the Corn Laws. Some, of course, I was going to say, except for at the, I'm at the LSE, so there are going to be historians <laughs> among you who do. Um, but the repeal of the Corn Laws, um, essentially a protectionist piece of legislation in Britain, um, removed uh, tariffs on grains which had protected the profits of landowners. It was a shift, a dramatic shift, away from mercantilism, which is this idea that countries should run trade surpluses. I know it sounds, ideas never die, they just come back in different guises. <laughs> and instead, um, Britain, and obviously, and, and you know, later on, um, this order premised on openness and open markets and free trade actually really started then because Britain became much more um, globalized in the sense of a commercial sense, not just in the colonial sense or 
what have you. So what basically that meant was that you had um, a lot more globalization. You had linkages between uh, Britain and the United States. It began to change the industrialized world, which was what the West was at that time, starting with Britain, moving to Germany and the United States, into a much more outward-facing, internationalist-looking um, set of economies. And, of course, with greater trade was also the flow of ideas. And the reason I'm pointing this out is um, when you start to think about the world as it looked in the late 19th century, it began to – you begin to get a sense that this is a world um, which is increasingly dominated by um, these ideas around capitalism, around globalization. But then crisis struck. So the Panic of 1873, which was a U.S. financial crisis, which then spread um, to Europe. Again, echoes of history. Mark Twain was right. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. <laughs> so after that, um, people uh, were very unhappy with globalization. They were very unhappy with the capitalist system, because at that same time, you also had vast income inequality. So the late 19th century going into the early 20th century was called the Gilded Age in the United States because of the vast differences in, in income and disparities. Um, so that panic of 1873 led to um, the first Great Depression, the Great Depression in the 19th century called the Long Depression, and that's when unemployment appeared in the dictionary for the first time. And that was also the rise of trade unionism. That was also the time of the rise of Marxism. So now I'm getting to the early part of the 20th century with the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. You began to see a competing system at one point in the early 20th century. 60% of the world lived in communist or socialist countries. So this battle of ideas um, was exactly that. So what you had were those who argued for a capitalist system linking it to democracy. So um, I'm going to focus on the economic writers. Obviously, it's a much broader universe. But Joseph Schumpeter, who many of you may know as the creator of create, uh, Creative Destruction, this idea that you know companies compete, very Darwinian, and then the weak ones, um, you know, die. <laughs> um, I don't have to come to these companies. Um, his best-known book was probably his book, um, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. And other writers, like Friedrich Hayek, wrote the book, The Road to Serfdom, which is a play on Alexei de Tocqueville's um, treatise on the United States. So what they were doing was they were arguing, by the time you got to the post-war period, um, to defend the capitalist system. And that help laid the groundwork um, for um, thinking about this link between capitalism and democracy and a rules-based um, open global system, fighting against um, the rise of an alternative system. And most importantly, I think, it changed the capitalist system to make it amenable for the 20th century, introducing the welfare state, which has already been mentioned. And that helped, with the rule-based system, reshape some of the um, unhappiness, it seemed, with globalization, including the imperial preference system, which, you know, but all of these things had a genesis in a, in a, in a clash, a clash of ideas. And it seemed like in the post-war period, um, there began to be this consensus around a rules-based international system, around capitalism. But of course, during the Cold War, there was an alternative system, um, the Soviet system, the communist system. And it seemed like with the end of the Cold War, we could be, we were heading to a point where 
this battle of ideas or the reform of the capitalist system, the system set up by, by America and by Britain was beginning to hold sway. But of course, and this brings me to the 21st century, um, this consensus is has again broken down in many ways. And it has broken down because of a backlash after a financial crisis from the United States <laughs> that then spread around the world. Inequality is so high in the United States today, it's called the second gilded age. And this backlash against capitalism, where we're once again talking about socialism. Um, and again, what I started my remarks with, which is non-democratic countries have had economic success creating these new middle class. Um, this is again a battle of ideas. So I want to conclude with some of what I hope we can talk about, which is the power aspect of this. So one of the remarkable things in, econom in the economic system, I've always found, looking back at history, was that the power um, which lies behind a lot of um, these relationships, when it shifted, there was still cooperation between Britain and the United States. It may have been less special <laughs> you know, by that point, but if you think about the early 20th century, when Britain began to um, recede as um, a superpower and therefore taking sterling with it, and the United States, uh, you know, Pax Americana, the 20th century was very much the United States. The dollar became ascendant. It was actually a coordinated effort between Britain and the United States to ensure that the switch from sterling to the dollar did not disrupt um, the economic system, the international financial system. And that this kind of cooperation meant that if there was a crisis, and this is again quite um, important, um, that there would be enough of a relationship, that it, wasn't, it was important to cooperate um, and to, um, to work together in a rules-based system. Now, of course, I'm going to finish with a thought on what the shift in power in 21st century means. I mentioned at the very start the rise of China, emerging economies with different systems. Um, you could imagine a shift in terms of currencies as well. And would there be today the same willingness to cooperate? Um, would the dollar, um, I'm not suggesting, by the way, the device of the dollar, nothing I say should be used for trading, it should be obvious, <laughs> right? <laughs> is, um, you know, if the, you know, as China is the world's biggest trader, if the RMB, which is already part of an international reserve uh, system in the IMF, SDRs, if the RMB becomes more and more important and you have perhaps not one dominant reserve currency, but you could have uh, more, two or more, or displacement, would there be the same willingness to have this transition of power between Presidents Trump and Xi? I mean, may not be in the next few years, but you get my sense into, will there still be the spirit of cooperation? And I think for um, any crisis, um, that is extremely important. But I wanted to use that currency example as one in which um, I think having um, an understanding of what the system is is so critical. Now, the, I'll just conclude by saying I'm not suggesting for, you know, at all that these new powers don't respect the international rules-based system because, as we've already heard on the stage today, um, this rules-based system is a global system, and it includes a lot of countries which are not democracies. Um, that is absolutely the case. They're respecting the rules. But the question is, the 21st century will have different rules because the 21st century has a different global economy. The 21st century is about technology, data, services, standards, Who's going to shape those rules? 
And you have to look at these countries and think they want to shape those rules, which would then bind them. So would there be cooperation in forming new rules, or do we end up with a balkanization, um, which is the opposite of cooperation, which had made the 20th century and this Anglo-American liberal democracy, this world order, um, this, you know, the, uh, the appealing uh, model that it was in the 21st century, what will this look like? Could we have cooperation, or does a multipolar world economy mean balkanization? So I'm just going to, to leave that question as a dangling question mm-hmm. and uh, hand over to me. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm, okay. yeah, I'm, I'm going to just mildly abuse my position as chair to ask each person a question, or at least a provocation. John, it sounded to me like you were getting nostalgic for the Cold War. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I never thought I'd ever say that. But when you're inside, outside, outside, inside, I didn't quite know what came first or second. But it did seem to me that you were, there was, a, in a way, as a good liberal, you sounded quite a lot like a realist. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to say that in public, but sorry, John. I'm, uh, mia culpa, mia maxima, and all the rest. But it was, I, I thought that was an interesting... I don't know, I mean, it was something I picked up there, John, because what you seem to be saying, I think it's a very good point, don't get me wrong. I just do think at the end of the Cold War both opened up huge opportunities we all know about. We don't need to go over those. But as the realist said, it also generated a whole series of problems and contradictions, many of which you started to talk about. You know, the West lost its uh, pizzazz, it lost its enemy, and, and in a sense the club-like character of the West was no longer so club-like. And also the permission, if you wish, of globalization to allow others into the system, and that has disturbed the system, including particularly the rise of China. So I'm not saying, are you nostalgic for the Cold War? I am, but you don't have to be. Um, but there, there we go. Oh, Corey, I loved, I loved your kind of almost revisionist approach, historical revisionism. Well, I kind of call I like revisionists anyway, as a general rule. Um, one of the things I've done a lot of work on over this last year is John Maynard Keynes and World War I, because in the end he wrote one of the greatest books of the 20th century called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which I've just written a very long introduction for, which is nearly as long as Keynes's book. Um, but one of the things that comes out of that, which I'd reinforce your point, when Keynes is doing these loans and working with the Americans during World War I, boy, is he fed up. And by 1916, he said, you know what? We, the British, the empire, the superior race of people, we've become dependent. We've become de- we can't fight this war without American money and ultimately without American troops. And, you know, his, 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 his dislike of the United, however much dependency there was, and it comes even more so in World War II and in the Cold War, that underlying British anti-Americanism, we often talk of an American, uh, you know, the, the Anglophobia of certain American groups. I think we've got to kind of take the other side of it. The question is, though, to you, Corey, is, Is that all shattered? Does that all go out through the Cold War? It does become special. After all, Churchill made his speech in in 1946. I just like, you know, just a few reflections on that, but I really pick up on your point about it becomes actually weirdly less special during World War I when Britain becomes more dependent um, on the United States. And Keynes is really quite strongly anti-American. It's not just mild stuff. You know, it's not just the coffee is horrible or whatever. It is, it, it is essentially a fundamental knowledge that this dependency really is the erosion of British power. 
Um, and the paradox of the special relationship is everybody thinks it becomes special at the very moment, and that's your point, isn't it, when, in a way, Britain becomes more and more dependent. And that, of course, is accelerated during the Second World War. To, to your point, Linda, I suppose my question to you is, is a very simple one, to which I don't think there is an easy answer, which is um, how serious do you think the challenge to liberalism is from the new authoritarian, or the very old authoritarian powers? Do they actually present an alternative? And I think that's really what mm. your point was, John. It's all very well to say the liberal order is in crisis for whatever set of reasons. You know, as Mrs. Thatcher used to say, I'm amazed I'm quoting Mrs. Thatcher. Um, <laughs> what's your alternative? You know, what, what's good? And, and, and do you think these emerging new, particularly China especially, present any serious alternative to what we exist? It's easy to criticise it, but what's the alternative to it? John, why don't you pick up and then, Corey, and then we open up quickly as possible to the floor. John. Um, thanks, Mick, and uh, terrific uh, comment. Uh, I, 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 I'm not nostalgic for the Cold War, but I think the Cold War had a profound impact in bringing the liberal project into the modern world. Uh, and, and in some ways, you were right that with the end of the Cold War, uh, the other, the foil, the great contest, no longer was a background condition for debates and for, uh, for, for, for all of this. And, and during the Cold War, I, I just spent a, a year at Oxford at All Souls, and Isaiah Berlin, his, his ghost is still there, and I, I really find him inspiring to, to, as a kind of liberal in the, in the hard days of the Cold War, thinking about what is the liberal project, and he, of course, has this kind of agonistic liberalism, agon, the, the Greek word for struggle or debate. Um, it's not about conquering the world or uh, making the world safe for democracy in this kind of expansionary uh, version of the Wilsonian theme, but it's about trying to find, in a kind of world-weary way, um, a, a, a basis to plant your flag for liberal democracy, to protect freedom or liberty, and, and so there is a kind of uh, Cold War liberalism that uh, may well be something we need to, to bring back. And maybe China and uh, the, the rise of another, I mean, if China kind of is a mishy-mashy kind of, it's a little bit in, a little bit out, and it doesn't really have a, a big, grand alternative to liberal democracy and capitalism, then, then you won't get a re Re return of this kind of grand project contest, and, but, but if they do, they may be doing a favor for liberal internationalism. <laughs> but the other point is that I, you know, thinking about Trump, as, uh, how can you get in the same America that had Obama and then all the presidents go back to Roosevelt, and then you have this other type of narrative of, 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 of na uh, nationalism, anti-globalism, a kind of ethno-nationalism of an American kind, white ethno-national identity that has been put into his, his coalition. And I think that maybe we would say looking at the world over many centuries, ethno-nationalism is kind of the default for societies. And you have to explain not America's um, uh, return to that, but how it got out of that uh, in the 20th century. And it got out of that partly because it's... It, for whatever reason, found itself the leader of the free world. And that's a very different uh, identity. And uh, Trump does not see himself as a leader of the free world. Yeah. I think that would freak him out if somebody told, whispered in his ear, that's what you are. And uh, so don't try it. Don't try it. Um, <laughs> 
I'd hate to see the tweet that comes out of that conversation. Um, Investigate Biden. (laughs) That would be the bottom line. But uh, so I think that there is a. I think that 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 we are living a a a deeper kind of. we're living through the fallout of, of losing that, those more, more grand constructions of our values and the, the politics that requires us to sustain them. Tony, any funny comments? Um, yeah, one quick comment on John's point. I think I agree with him, but I think it's important not to mythologize the past. It's very easy to think that, you know, 1945 to 19 to 2000 were the glory years. But let's recall the Vietnam War and race riots in the United States and the Kennedy assassination. Like, we are seldom as good as we paint ourselves in retrospect. And yet the liberal order held together because of the rules and institutions, the voluntary binding of each other's autonomy, and the fact that the alternative looked so worse, so much worse. And the alternative of a rising China setting rules, as we are seeing in Hong Kong and the South China Sea, has may crazily enough do exactly what you suggest and remind all of us, oh, yeah, this is why we get along with each other and make those kinds of compromises. So to your very good point about um, British anti-Americanism, it's not just Keynes. It's prevalent no, through not just through British government, through British society as well. And one of the things that was weird for me um, in doing my research for Safe Passage was Mm -hmm. the extent to which even the British middle class was Mm anti-American, right? You should have known my father, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's the the British lower class that are pro-American, right? And that's natural (laughs) because Americans are arguing for upending the social order. Um, and the beneficiaries of that would be the lower classes and the poor. Um, to, the, to the point about government politics, though, my favorite example is the Washington Naval Accords of 1921, because that's the first time the United States forces a set of rules on Britain that Britain doesn't want to have happen. Um, and so it's, it's a series of five interlocking treaties that are actually about um, order in the Pacific about managing Japan and China and the competition among European powers and the United States in the Pacific. Uh, And uh, the United States imposes on Britain naval restrictions equivalent to those that the United States, with much fewer international responsibilities and a much smaller force. Parenthetically, the funniest thing to come out of these is that so there are limits on tonnage and uh, breadth of ships. And Britain had already laid the hulls for a class of ships that get eliminated in the Washington Naval Accords. And the Royal Navy calls them, and, and what Britain does is size those ships down, cut the hulls down to a size compliant with the treaty. And the Royal Navy calls them the Washington class because they got chopped down. Um, uh, the cherry tree the cherry tree analogy from George Washington. So, so as early as 1921, the U.S. is quite assertive mm. about the rules that apply to everyone else have to apply also to Britain. Mm. Um, and so the animosity casts a long shadow. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we need to say that. Uh, Linda. Um, 
So I actually think the biggest challenge to liberalism and a liberal world order and to a democratic system be linked to capitalism is its gradual erosion. I think unlike maybe the previous battles of the past, which um, so the reason I talk a lot about great economists is that uh, my book is on great economists. Their ideas were so general and about the entire system. You know, it, Karl Marx was about the entire system. Adam Smith wrote about the entire system. I mentioned Joseph Schumpeter, Friedrich Hayek. They imagined the, an entire system, their worldview, which, by the way, were diametrically opposed to each other. Um, you had very free market people like Friedrich Hayek, you know, and then, you, of course, you had sort of, you had Keynes also with his own System, but I think the challenge today mm. is that it's a gradual erosion, and I would predate, I would date it to before China's emergence in the um, late 1970s. I would date it to, um, you know, the growth of um, what's called the East Asia miracle. These countries, which um, became rich in the post-war period, growing predominantly between the 1960s and the 1980s. Um, these economies, Singapore, um, Hong Kong, uh, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, uh, became prosperous not with a, in effect, I believe, um, I, I think, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, their systems are described not as non-democratic but as soft authoritarianism in the IR literature, and this predates China. So what you're seeing is, you know, within from this period, and I'll, in that region, um, Economies which became rich. These are countries, the very few countries that actually became rich in the post-war period. Only 13 countries have become rich since 1960. The world today, only one quarter of the countries are high income. So the appeal of that model was already beginning to change the way we view That's the link between capitalism and democracy. Remember the, what I said about Friedrich Hayek, the road to serfdom. Friedrich Hayek argued that the only system, the only system compatible with democracy was one which is a capitalist one because that allowed you to decide what you produce, where you work, where you live, what you consume, what you get paid. And what you already begin, begun to see in Asia was a change in the economic model that was bringing prosperity. So by the time that China adopted market-oriented reforms in 1979, it was, as it currently still does, look to um, you know, what has worked for other countries. And if you look at the number of countries that don't become prosperous in the post-war period, so there were 101 middle-income countries in 1960. So that means that... Um, 90, oh, nearly 90 of them did not become prosperous. Those countries um, are generally speaking um, countries that others may not look to if they want to become prosperous. So the Chinese model is very incremental. It's very practical. It's very adaptive. But if you fit it into the larger picture of what's happening in Southeast Asia, which I've already mentioned some of those countries, if you look at um, in Africa, looking at systems other than, um, and John mentioned this as some of the failures, um, the Washington consensus not producing prosperity for these economies. You can see the appeal of looking for an alternative. So to me, the biggest challenge to the system is that the economic prosperity of a lot of countries are being driven by systems which don't have the same democratic institutional base as in the Anglo-American with the liberal world order. And that is where I think the biggest challenge 
comes in is, you know, if you believe in this world order, and I think there's a lot of reasons, as I said, to try to avoid balkanization, then what arguments do you make to reestablish that link? Great. Okay, we've got a good 20 minutes for questions. Who would like to kick off? There's a lady here. I'll take one there. Where's the microphones? We've got more than one. Good. LSE must make some major investments into microphones. <laughs> lady here. Who, I had somebody over here, did I? A gentleman here. Let me tell you, a gentleman here. I, could you just make it one person, one question, please? Thank you very much. Yeah. Who's got it? Yeah. Pass it along. Thanks. Sorry. And I'll take two, and I'll come upstairs as well. Yeah. One, please. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Uh, this is, I, I don't know if this is working. Anyway, I'm really loud, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Doctor <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really have to correct you. Wow. There were people that lived in the Oregon Territory. Millions of people lived in the Oregon Territory. I see you the argument. No, no, concede the argument. Well, what I would not, I say this not to be the annoying lefty. I say this as a scholar of the history of ideas and the history of international imperial ideas. What if taking the shocking violence that happened in the name of, of the development, the long-term unfolding of the liberal world order into account, how would that change the history that we tell now? Okay, very good. It's a great well, question. We need some system. I like leftists anyway, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thank you very much. That's terrific. Uh, gentlemen here, please. Yeah. Hello. Um, thank you very much for the um, interactive session which we had today. Uh, my question is basically about uh, picking up from uh, Professor Linda. Um, she talked about the uh, emergence of multipolar economically. Um, but um, in consideration of the various uh, situations, for example, the election of uh, President Trump or the rise of the uh, populism, uh, can we envisage uh, that liberalism would be weakened by forces of culture or religion? Okay, that's one. I've got, I've got a gentleman up there. Might have, uh, somebody over here, too, yeah. Okay, yeah. Whatever, yeah. Give him a mic, would you? Yeah. 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 Very authoritarian, you know. Yeah, please, sir. <laughs> Clearly, with the issue of Anglo-American, for demographic and geopolitical purposes, the emphasis is on American rather than Anglo. Now, with the own mass Chinese ownership of United States bonds, what leverage does that give over the United States in a possible conf conflict over Taiwan and South Korea? Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, one more over here, yeah? I was wondering what the panelists think about the role of Western military powers going forward. Western military powers in the plural. Going forward, yeah. yeah. Not just U.S. military power. U.S. Okay. Britain. U.S. Okay. The ones who messed up Iraq right, okay, and Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to answer the very good question about how would uh, focusing on the violence of the creation of the American empire change the historiography. Because I actually tell the story in my book, Safe Passage, that the question that animated me to try and understand the story was how is it that a country that uh, barbarically uh, deals not just with Native Americans but also black Americans comes to be this icon of the liberal world order. Um, and what I concluded is that, um, uh, that as the United States grows more powerful, it also grows more liberal. 
because throughout most of the 19th century in most of the United States, there are small little islands, uh, Rhode Island in particular, uh, that are much more liberal than the rest of the country. But the United States is a fundamentally illiberal democracy for most of the 19th century. Um, so it doesn't change how I tell the story, because for me that's integral to the story, that the United States only becomes liberal after it becomes comfortably powerful, and that's actually a nice thing to say about the 20th century, but John's theory of liberal internationalism doesn't work in the 19th century because the United States isn't a liberal country. Well, um, you know, I, I, think it, I think there's a lot of liberalism in the 19th century. Uh, uh, it, it, the, in the various types of liberal internationalism in the 19th century were, were specific kinds of internationalism. And the, the specific ones were the free trade movement, which, of course, the abolition of the corn laws and, that, and the, the trade politics that followed across the Atlantic. The, um, the peace movement. Uh, which was very much rooted in, in Christian peace movements in the United States and in, in Britain and then on the continent, and then it became more secularized as the century, 19th century goes on. Richard Cobden, of course, uh, becomes an important figure linking trade and, and peace. The co Congress movements between 19, 1800 to 1900, there are over a thousand congresses and league meetings uh, in Europe uh, on. Uh, of parliamentarians, of, 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 of various delegations of different countries practicing the idea of building multilateral institutions. And then the arbitration movement, which does become an Anglo-American affair. These are the countries that if there are 500 uh, arbitration agreements in the 19th century, 80% of them are between the United States and, and, and Britain. And of course, they are the ones that tried to put a kind of international arbitration uh, tribunal at the centerpiece of of the system with the rise of jurists and the legal movements of that period. So I, I think there is a lot of liberal internationalism in the 19th century, but it's broken into different pieces. What, what happens after World War I is that Wilson, Woodrow Wilson and his uh, British counterparts turn it into a, a project, into a, a movement by knitting together these different internationalisms into braiding it really into, into something that, that becomes a movement. Um, so I, I guess I see much more continuity, much more Anglo-Americanism. Uh, you know, Bismarck said the single most important geopolitical fact of the modern era is that, that Americans speak English. <laughs> that is to say there is this kind of lineage and heritage. That even as these countries are fighting over empire, imperial preference, the Atlantic Charter is not, doesn't settle at all. But I, I guess I... Um, I see, see a kind of evolving process in the 19th century. Last point about, about Woodrow Wilson and racism, because it's kind of one of the sort of shadows that, that's hanging over our discussion. He was a racist, uh, and there, it, it manifested itself at Versailles, of course, and before that in Washington, resegregating re the national service. He had a very limited view. Of, it was very limited lib liberalism. It was really of the civilized world uh, that he took to be tied to a kind of uh, implicit racial hierarchy. Um, and he broke people's hearts because he couldn't quite deliver what seemed to be a moral view of world politics that should have included racial equality, he, which he opposed the Japanese resolution. 
and Du Bois came to, to Paris. He had voted for Wilson in 1912. He had voted against him. He went for the progressive candidate in the next election. But he came back to Paris because he thought there must be something in this crazy Princeton professor's head that would get him to, uh, to, to see a larger, a larger uh, justice, uh, and it didn't, didn't work out. What really turned the tide, what, what allowed for the, the, the incremental removal of racial hierarchical thinking in the liberal vision in the 20th century really occurs uh, in the 40s with, uh, with the rise of Nazism's uh, racism taking raci racial, racial attitudes that had been part of the Western experience in the 19th century onward, and then the Nazis turned it into a, a, a geopolitical strategy that, that makes it clear that this is, and, and delegitimates racial thinking inside of the West. So the civilizational argument that inside the West we're all uh, Enlightenment thinkers, and it's it's the barbarians outside of civilization that are the that are the the threat. It now is barbarians are inside the West. We are not all civilized. Germany and Japan were part of that project, and now look at what they're doing. And that begins to to be an inflection point for thinking about uh, about universal values in a slightly different way. And the the Wilsonian racism uh, loses ground. Um, I think on the question of whether liberalism is weakened by populism and, um, and other things, the answer is yes. I think um, what you are, the, the erosion, well, I was just thinking about, there's been, there's been critiques of democracy for as long as I can remember. One of the ones I was just thinking about is, you know, in Chicago, um, there, was a, there was a saying like, you know, Vote once and vote often. Often, <laughs> vote early, vote often. <laughs> there you go, vote early. And but I think the <laughs> so I think you know when you're talking about um, this system, um, the the dominance of money, especially in the United States, and special interests, and that's the case in all democracies, it starts to make it starts to erode um, trust in the system. So the system starts to look less and less appealing. And that is part of, um, I think, the challenge, uh, which is, you know, part of um, power is soft power. It is, um, it is the values. It is the, um, it is the things which um, the current backlash, um, I, you know, I, I don't, I think I'm just going to call it the backlash. I think some backlash against backlash may actually help us, um, you know, in this, if you're going to make this argument. But the backlash is, as I was saying um, before, it is a backlash against this system. There was a, a survey done across advanced economies, so liberal democracies, which found that a majority of the people think the system is rigged. It is a loss of trust. And the question is, if you want the system if you want to have a 21st version of the system, you're going to have to think about ways to strengthen democracy, and you have to think about ways to rebuild trust. Otherwise, it is a huge problem, I think, in terms of thinking about um, alternatives. But remember what I said before, is that when you have a breakdown in consensus, it's a chance to forge anew. This is the time, you know. And then on the, uh, the question about China and um, Treasury. So, yeah, I... Um, one of the things about um, economists is that <laughs> one of the things is that a lot of the um, a lot of the the kind of 
and I see this a lot in the U.S. and China, is that there's a lot of political, um, you know, back and forth and dissatisfaction in our system, your system, and we don't trust each other, we have a trade war, you can't invest here, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. Um, but beneath the rhetoric, um, there's a lot of economic linkages. And those are the economic linkages which, um, if you talk, you know, I'm sure people who do business know this. It's like, oh, yeah, forget the politicians. You know, we're doing lots of business here. <laughs> and I think the kind of Chinese ownership of Treasury sort of falls into that category, despite the trade war, despite the rhetoric, despite the rise of China as an economic superpower, indeed as a superpower, the amount of economic linkages are really deep. And I think that's one of the ways in which um, you, could, you would hope that the 21st century does not become this balkanized system that I'm describing, where you have a system in the West, when you have a system um, in Asia, or some other cleavages, which, by the way, means other countries may have to choose um, which standard they want. I'm hoping we don't get there. And if you think about how deeply connected the international financial system is, that's one um, adhesive in the system, which I hope um, remains. Can I add one point to that, which is that um, uh, Chinese government and the Chinese banks and enterprises buy treasuries as a safe repository of value over time. And collapsing the value of treasuries, they can't do it without doing damage to themselves. So it's not... Um, it's not as valuable a weapon as it sometimes gets talked about. Yeah, and, and, and as far as I know, it's about 11 or 12 percent of the total. So over 60 percent of treasury bonds are actually held by Americans. On by the, the Western Fed, actually. The, yeah, the so, Fed is yeah. the biggest owner of U.S. Yeah, treasuries. Yeah, quickly on the military side. Yeah, um, I was conscious of that, yeah. Yep. Uh, so you probably saw China's 70th anniversary parade uh, the other oh, day, right? Big and impressive. Uh, Western militaries are bad at parades. Um, what President they, Trump wanted one. <laughs> Indeed, and you'll notice what it was. It wasn't China's 70th anniversary parade. It was four tanks parked stationary because D.C. won't let them on the streets because they chew up the ropes. Oh, that's it. Okay. <laughs> Which is the point. Well, that, that's right? a sign of American Western, decline. Right? No, 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 my friend. What it is a sign of is what Western societies are great at that China has not proven itself great at. Which is military innovation and civilian control. I've got to bring some other people in. There's a woman down here, one and a guy at the back. I'm going to try and get some, you know, where, there's, a, there's a woman in the middle there. Where are you? My friend, where are you? You, you disappear. What are you He's over there. He's over there. Yeah, there's you know, somebody in the middle okay. here. We'll take two or three. Hurry up. Yeah, let, why don't you begin? Yeah, hi. Professor Eikenberry, is there a tension? Where are you? I'm here. Oh, I'm here. <laughs> oh, hi, where are you? I was looking over here. Yeah. Is there a tension between your assertions on the one hand that what is unique about Anglo-American hegemony was the milieu building, right, that they didn't just throw their weight around like other hegemons before and after them, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the notion that now we can take the death of Anglo-America as a pars pro toto for the death of the whole system. Aren't we called upon now that Anglo-America is turning away from liberalism, or at least it looks like that, to either retell that story of the high-minded milieu building or to turn our gaze towards other members of that milieu? It's a great question. But I don't have enough time to answer every single question or every single... Who else has got their hand up? Who's got a mic in their hand? <laughs> Who's got a mic in their hand? Over there. Right. Go. Okay, go. Um, I just wanted to say, over the past 12 administrations, the U.S. has worked so hard to create a liberal um, order, a world liberal order, and just in the past couple of years alone, 
through the breaking down of treaties and Trump putting America first and everything, it seems like the liberal world order is definitely under threat. So I was just wondering if you had any predictions if for his administration or the next one, like okay. what's going to happen? prediction, don't make it. Uh, that will ruin your career. Um, I'm not done mine any good, I can assure you. I just want uh, to, the, the gentleman at the end there, you know. I want to ask what, Last one. I want to ask what role the Iraq war specifically played in the decline of international liberal world order. Precise and clear. Uh, John, why don't you kick off and then we're going to draw things to an end. Yeah. Okay, well, on the milieu point, maybe I, I'll take that one. I mean, I, I, I tend to think that, um, that the ideas behind uh, liberal order building are, are not only, uh, uh, in the end, ideas that... that uh, Anglo-America should embrace. There are other countries that have staked their their livelihood in the continuation of this system, not least Japan and Germany, but South Korea is in many ways a poster child of, of how they have uh, made in, uh, commitments to and investments in a way of life that depends on this kind of open rule-based system to continue. So I think, yeah. I think the constituencies are there, but looking at over the last 200 years, it is true that liberal internationalism has, has, has fared best when it is tied to uh, enlightened foreign policies of powerful states. And so that is why I worry that simply a coalition of like-minded countries, which is the best I think we're going to be able to shoot for, may not be enough to, to, to preserve it yep. in the long run. Do you want to make a prediction, Kari? Uh, yes. I predict the liberal powers will step up, and I think you already see it. Look at Japan training, cascading military equipment and training the navies and coast guards of Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia to protect their fishing waters against Chinese depredation. You see it begin to happen. And my prediction is that the good thing about democratic governance is the ability to correct itself. Um, and I would encourage you to read about the year 1954, which looked almost as fraught as this one. You had American military force, uh, units forcibly integrating schools in the American South. You have Dwight Eisenhower saying the NATO idea is over and threatening a, uh, what was it, uh, reconsideration of America's relationship to Europe. There's a lot going on always. This time looks particularly fraught, even to me, but I actually think we have the tools to fix this, and will. Do you have the tools to fix it? Uh, I, I don't, I don't I'm going to suggest one fix. Um, this is another quote from Rahm Emanuel, the current uh, Chicago mayor, but the former chief of staff for Obama. He said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And the, uh, the lacuna in leadership, because of the United States' current stance, actually opens up space for other countries to help shape the rules that's going to govern the global um, system, the global economic system. And it's only by opening up the space for participation from others. It may change the milieu, it may change the system, but it's up to those who believe in the system to incorporate the new voices, but to stay true to the values that have underpinned the system. Mm -hmm. So as the Americans step back, others will step in, and we just have to make sure it's inclusive, but it sticks to the values that um, this system believes in. And I think that's probably the only way, really, to fix 
the system and find a new consensus. So think of it as an opportunity, the Trump years. Excellent. Now, I'm going to make a couple of announcements. One I'm totally surprised to be making. We're giving away free drink uh, across, the route, across the way there in the central building. It's got here in yellow, drinks and canapes, uh, or canapes. Uh, and a reception on the ground floor of the neighbouring brand new LSE building, Yay. which is not flooded at the moment. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that, but it did go badly wrong last week and it closed it down for a whole day. <laughs> However, there will be drinks and canapes over there. Please come over and you can meet all the speakers. I've also got an announcement today, make the LSE will not close down on, after the 31st of October, just in case you thought it might do. Uh, and last but by no means least, I'd like to thank all of you for your questions, challenging and good, and the speakers as well.